You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. say a special welcome to those watching online uh, today. I'm super excited for this teaching series, which we are uh, kicking off the year. It's called Rebuild the Ruins, and we're looking at Nehemiah and the story of Nehemiah, the life and times of Nehemiah, and if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're actually going to be reading through the entirety of the first chapter today uh, in our sermon, so go ahead and we'll get there in just a few moments. Uh, Last week, we kind of set up this series by talking about, you know, primarily, uh, the story of Nehemiah is the story of a man who helps rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but it's so much more than that. It's it's, uh, the fact that we believe and we sing to a God who can rebuild the ruins in our lives and in our world. Amen? And so we're going to be looking at that and learning about that, and Nehemiah provides a phenomenal example of leadership of calling, of following the things that God is calling you to do. And yet the reason why Nehemiah is such a great leader is because he's a man of prayer. And so really this teaching series is kind of like a prayer teaching series in disguise, okay? Because every week what we're going to see is time and time and time again, the reason why Nehemiah has success and favor is because He relies deeply on God in prayer. He's one of those people uh, that really is described in James chapter 5. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. James 5, 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now James is talking about Elijah the prophet. Now he he was a powerful and effective man of prayer, wasn't he? He prayed and fire came down from heaven. What we see is Nehemiah is that kind of person. Do you know people like that? People that you're like, you know, you, something happens in your life or there's a, bit, there's a heavy prayer need and you want to make sure that person's on the list, that you're texting that person, you're calling that person, you're let, you, you want to make sure that that person is praying for you because you don't quite know how to describe it other than the fact that when they pray, it's powerful and effective. In the King James Version, James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous person avails much or accomplishes much. And it just seems like there are certain people that when they pray, it accomplishes something. It actually moves the heart of God in heaven. And I just want to ask you this simple question. Do you want to pray like that? And we're going to to look at Nehemiah's prayer. Most of Nehemiah chapter 1 is just his prayer. And uh, the reality is, I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler. It's not a technique. It's not magic words. It has more to do with the person who's praying than even necessarily the words that they say. And if you're here and you're maybe brand new to church or faith and you're just kind of asking questions about who God is, I've got good news for you. Prayer is the beginning of a relationship with God. And so I would even encourage you that today would fill you with a little bit of hope, a little bit of faith that you can actually begin to pray even before you have all your questions answered, even before you're convinced or certain of who Jesus is, I would actually challenge you. Would you start praying? Would you start talking to God as if he is real? 
and watch how God reveals himself to you because we all know that communication is the foundation of relationship. And so would you start there? Would you start with just talking to God wherever you're at? And if you're here and maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for years and years and years and years, I've got good news for you. We never quite master prayer, do we? In fact, I would say the, lo- the longer that we pray, the longer that I pray at least, the more I realize I'm just a beginner at prayer, and there's more that I can learn. And I don't know about you, but I have a hunger to be a powerful and effective prayer. And, uh, and so we're going to learn how we can do that today. Are you there, Nehemiah chapter 1? We'll start in the first three verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant is there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now this is the main problem introduced in the very first three verses. The main problem of the book of Nehemiah is that the walls of the city are still torn down. Now we have to understand how significant this is, and I want to set this up with uh, a timeline, okay, to help set us in the context. So last week we looked at uh, two different fires. One of the fires was the fire of destruction, which took place in 586 BC. This is the siege of Jerusalem. We read from 2 Kings chapter 25. You can read it a few other times. But this is the Babylon, this is like the final battle that the Babylonian Empire truly destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Well, time goes on, and the Babylonian Empire would fall to the Persian Empire. The first emperor, the first king of the Persian Empire was King Cyrus, and Cyrus had a different approach to captive nations. Instead of taking them from their homeland, he actually began returning them to their places and even sending them with supplies, resources, and manpower so that they could rebuild some of their cities, some of their places of worship. You had this idea that if people were able to worship their way and live in their, their homeland, that they would actually be stronger allies to the empire. And you can read about the decree of Cyrus from Ezra chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11. But what's phenomenal to me is one of the, one of the most uh, profound uh, artifacts that's been discovered from archaeology is this thing called the Cyrus Cylinder, and it essentially lines up perfectly with Ezra chapter 1. It, it, it records the, the Persian, the Persian uh, Empire's approach to sending people home, and it's, it's phenomenal. Well, a few years later, uh, after sending uh, waves of exiles back to Jerusalem, the second temple was completed in 515 B.C., Again, you can read about these events in the book of Ezra. Initially, Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one document. They were one scroll, and so we have them separated out in our Bibles, but essentially it's part one and part two of the story. The second temple was completed. Ezra is there, and, uh, and things at least look like they're trending in the right direction. Uh, in, fi- in 483 B.C., the events of Esther started. The events of Esther took place. Uh, so if you read in your Bible and you read uh, the story of Esther and she marries King Xerxes, King Xerxes is the father of the Persian king Artaxerxes, which is the king that Nehemiah serves. Does that make sense? And so here we are in 445 B.C., 
141 years after the city was destroyed. And so why aren't the walls rebuilt yet? That's the question. So if you read 2 Kings chapter 25, it's no surprise. Yes, the walls are in ruins, but we're over a century later. Funds have been sent, people have been sent, permission has been given for the city to be rebuilt, and, and it's happened partially. The second temple has been built, and yet the walls of the city lie in ruins. And you can kind of read beneath the text that somebody is trying to keep the people vulnerable. I mean, city walls are very, very significant in the ancient world. Think about the idea of safety and security. It's a very effective defense, right? There's no drone warfare or, or artillery fire. Essentially, one of your best defenses as a city is to have a wall. And so it's, it's you know, the people are defenseless. The city walls are also a place of commerce, so this signifies bad economy for the people, but also there's this idea of there's this national identity. We're not quite yet a people again. We're not, you know, we don't, if we don't have our walls, then there's this great shame and sense of loss of identity. And so really, the book of Nehemiah is not just about literally the rebuilding of walls, it's about the restoring of a people. And so Nehemiah gets this news, and for him, it is news. I mean, there's no social media, there's no email, and so he has to wait until one of his kinsmen actually travels over 750 miles from Jerusalem all the way to Susa, one of the capital cities of the Persian Empire, to deliver this news. And Nehemiah receives it, and for him, it's terrible, it's devastating, it's heartbreaking. I just want to pause for a moment and ask you that question. What do you do when you receive terrible news? I mean, there's many different responses. One of the most common responses is shock. I mean, terrible news in the world. You turn on the TV, you, you, you open up the news app, and you see just, you know, another war. You see another bombing, or you see these kind of things, and there's shock that might take place. Maybe there's denial. Maybe there's, there's anger that rises up inside of you. For some of you, maybe you get sad or depressed. I think for most of us, there's even that feeling of callousness, isn't there? Where we're so inundated with all the bad news, both in our personal lives and out there in the world, that we just kind of change the channel, try to, to, to distract ourselves. But that's not what Nehemiah does. What we're going to see what Nehemiah does is the very first thing he does is he prays. This is a lesson for us. Prayer is a first response not a last resort. God's going to use Nehemiah in some powerful ways. But it starts with prayer. Everything starts with prayer. Because here's what prayer does. Prayer, if, if, you, if you, let's say you're personally going through a trial or suffering, here's what prayer does. Prayer leaves the door of relationship open to God. As opposed to the trial, the suffering, the pain, building a wall between you and God, what prayer does is allows you to like, actually express the pain and the grief in your heart to your Father in heaven, and it leaves that door of relationship open. But what prayer also does is it leaves the door open on the other way for God's power to actually move and work and change the situation. So here's what this means for us. We've got to pray. We've got to pray. 
And in those times of desperation, perhaps those are the times we need to pray the most. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Nehemiah's prayer, and it's the rest of chapter one. So it's going to be a little bit longer of a section. Uh, The words are going to be up on the screen. You can follow along in uh, your Bible as well, but I'm going to read through all of his prayer because he wouldn't have prayed it one verse at a time. He would have prayed this prayer all at once. I want to read it all at once, and then we're going to break it down and look at what we can learn about a powerful and effective prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Amen? Amen. And then there's this last line, now I was cupbearer to the king. It's a powerful prayer. As we'll read through the rest of Nehemiah, it's an effective prayer. This is a prayer that accomplishes much. And what I want to do is I want to break down, I want to look at six things that make this prayer powerful and effective. So if you like taking notes, you can write down a list one to six. And if you like alliteration, I'll do you one better. Today's sermon is brought to us by the letter C. (laughs) I worked really hard this week as a preacher, okay? Got all, all six of these start with the letter See, six elements of a powerful prayer. Let's jump in. Number one is compassion. Compassion means you pray your heart. You don't try to pray what you think you should say. You don't try to clean up your prayer. You actually just pray your heart. And that's really where it begins. Now, it begins with Nehemiah sitting down. This is like news that, that knocks him off his feet. And he sits down, with his, which is a posture of, of mourning. And he weeps and he mourns for days. But all the while, he's not just weeping and mourning. It says he's fasting and praying while he's weeping and mourning. Now, what's so powerful about this is, like I mentioned, the situation is over 750 miles away as the crow flies. It's like weeks worth of a journey to get back home. Nehemiah is isolated. He's got a cushy government job in a different, in a totally different place. And he's not like, man, that's, that's too bad for those people. He, he, he allows his heart to break. This is called the crystallization of discontent. It's not somebody's problem way over there. This is his problem. These are his people. And he allows himself to be moved to the point of compassion. 
Powerful prayers are prayers motivated by compassion. Not just where we pray about things that made it on our list because we, we're, we're obligated to or we feel like we should. It's where you actually care about the people that you're praying for. We see this in the life and ministry of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had what? He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the people were harassed and helpless before Jesus came along. The only problem is the religious leaders of his days were not compassionate. They were callous towards the people. They could care less about the people. They actually were the ones harassing them and keeping them helpless. And so what, what Christ does is he brings this level of care and compassion. And he allows his heart to be moved for the people that he's ministering to. Do you allow your heart to break for the things that break God's heart? Until God's people begin to weep with those who weep and begin to actually care about the things that we're praying for, we're, we're not going to be praying as powerful and effective kinds of prayers. We've got to engage the emotional center of our being. The second element of a powerful prayer is conviction. Conviction means you pray it like you mean it, okay? Nehemiah is, is, is sincere or he's serious about prayer. How do I know that he's serious about prayer? Because he's fasting in conjunction with praying. It's, fasting is one of the ways to show to God, I'm serious about this prayer. I'm not just casual or flippant. This is not some easy prayer. I'm, I'm willing to, to starve for the sake of this prayer. And what biblical fasting is, it's abstaining from food as a way of depending on God. It's a way of, it's a way of cultivating hunger for Jesus. Fasting is a spiritual discipline often associated with mourning. It's, it's a different way to mourn than we typically mourn. You know, when somebody is sad, what do we do? Ben and Jerry's, right? We, we, we use comfort food as a way of dealing with discomfort, and yet time and time again in Scripture, when somebody's going through grief, fasting ways like literally mourning with your body. And what Nehemiah does is, is what fasting can do is it can actually, I, I describe it like this, it's like turning up the volume in your prayer life, where it allows you to show God that you have a deep level of sincerity, that you really, really care about the thing that you're praying for. I think it can, it can lead to really powerful times of prayer. It's also a way of discerning the voice of God. You see, you can pray without fasting. Many of us probably have that experience, but I don't think you should ever really fast without praying, unless you're doing like one of those keto, you know, fitness things that people do in the new year or whatever. But if you're, if you're fasting in a biblical sense for a spiritual discipline, it only really has its power if you replace the time that you would spend eating food with hungering for God in some way. Whether that's feasting on scripture, whether that's spending that time in prayer, or even silence. Spending that time connecting with God through silence and solitude. Fasting gets its power from the times that you're hungering for God. And if you've never tried fasting, I know it's a very unpopular spiritual discipline in America, uh, you know, for, for many of us, maybe you don't have any experiences or any positive experiences of fasting. Uh, today marks one month from the start of Lent. Lent from the early church is a, uh, a season of fasting, a 40-day period of fasting leading up to Easter. And I would just challenge you to consider how might you experiment or try fasting 
this year at Lent. It might be once a week you skip one meal and you just spend that time in prayer. And just see what God would do if you were to incorporate fasting in your prayer life. When the disciples tried healing someone and they, were try- they tried praying over this boy who was afflicted by an evil spirit, they weren't able to do it. And yet Jesus prayed one simple prayer, he cast out the demon, and the disciples later were like, why weren't we able to do this? You wanna know how Christ responded? This kind of thing only can be done by prayer and, and fasting. And so he, what he's saying is, if you want your prayers to be more powerful and more effective, and you've never tried fasting, maybe that's what you can incorporate because it gives you a greater level of conviction when you're praying. And for you, maybe you can't fast from food for health reasons or whatever that might be. I would encourage us, what's the other thing other than food that we consume the most in our modern society? It's digital content. And you might consider this Lent even a digital fast. Fast, deleting apps, at least for a 40-day period, and spending the time, I mean, just look at your screen time report. Spending the time, what if you spent two and a half hours, three and a half hours plus, the time that you spend looking at screens, scrolling endlessly, what if you spent that time hungering and thirsting for God? Do you think your prayers would be more powerful? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we've got to start praying with conviction as opposed to praying casually. The third element of a powerful prayer is Nehemiah prays the covenant. What this means is he prays God's promises back to him. Notice the language, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. He reminds God of the covenant that he's made with his people. I mean, how do you know that you're praying something that's within God's will? You pray scripture. This is is one of the most powerful things that we can do, is, is hiding God's word in our heart, filling our hearts, filling our minds with scripture to actually shape our prayer life. Because here's the reality. A powerful and effective prayer is not your ability to change God's will. It's actually your ability to discern and pray God's will. Does that make sense? And so when when you're able to understand and recognize God's promises from Scripture and you remind God of those things, you're not doing that because God has short-term memory loss. God knows Scripture better than we do, right? And yet, When Nehemiah calls on God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the covenant. Remember what you said, God. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31. This is Moses' words. This is very likely what Nehemiah is referencing. For the Lord your God is a merciful God, and he will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant, your fathers, that he swore to them. And you know what Nehemiah is saying? You didn't forget, did you? You swore that you wouldn't forget. You remember the covenant. And the reality is, this is powerful because it actually shapes the kinds of things that we're even asking. And it gives us a greater level of confidence, doesn't it? Because if I'm just asking God for something that, you know, an idea I came up with or something I think is good, I'm trying to assert my will onto God, I'm not going to be as confident. But if I'm praying something that I already know God has made a promise to his people, then I'm gonna be up there in the throne room of God knocking on the door of heaven. Because the good news for you is if you are in Christ Jesus, you're in God's covenant people. You're one of God's children. I look at Ephesians chapter three, verses 11 and 12. Before 
Paul writes this phenomenal prayer that God would do more than we could ask or imagine. This is what he says. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has recognized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Because of the covenant that God has made with his people, and and for you and me in Christ Jesus, what what the Apostle Paul is saying is he's saying we we are God's children through faith. Because of the covenant purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, because of that, we actually have boldness in our prayers. Think about this idea of of waking up a king in the middle of the night. Tim Keller gives us this illustration of who would dare do such a thing, right? Not, not, Not one of the servants, not one of the royal officials, you know. Who would dare do such a thing other than a child? The child of the king. Because they have, it's called access. My kids wake me up in the middle of the night all the time. They don't think twice about it. They don't care. But there's this, there's this level of access that actually gives you confidence, that gives you boldness. And as sons and daughters of your Father in heaven, because of the covenant that, that Christ Jesus has purchased for us, we can have confidence in our prayer life. Isn't that good news? And if we were to actually recognize that we have access, that's going to give us powerful and effective prayers. The fourth element of a powerful prayer is confession. A major component of the prayer that Nehemiah prays here in Nehemiah chapter 1 is confession. Did you catch that? Not a minor component, a major component. Confession means you are quick to own your own sin. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. And notice what he's doing. He's actually confessing the sins for the people, for the nation. Again, this isn't just some far-off land, some far-off people, and he's like, well, I didn't do anything that led to the tearing down of the walls. Not my people, not my problem. That's not how he's treating this. He is so quick and willing to own not just his sin, his father's sin, but even the the sins of the people, of the nation. And I just got to tell you that I believe one of the biggest things that makes our prayers powerless and ineffective, one of the things that hinders our prayers is unconfessed sin. And it makes sense. It makes sense that if we have secret, hidden sin, if we're living lives of hypocrisy, and we go to God with with things that we want God to do, or even good things that, that God does care about, things that are in line with his will, and we go to God about those things time and time and time and time and time again, but we never go to God about our primary need for forgiveness, for the relationship to be restored, I almost wonder at times if God's saying, you're asking me for all these things, and maybe even some of them are good things, but you're not talking to me about the one thing that's most important for you right now, that sin that you still need to confess. See, as opposed to Nehemiah, I think we are slow. We are hesitant. We are at times even ignorant to praying prayers of confession. And just ask yourself, I mean, give, give yourself a percentage. How, how much percentage of the prayers that you pray are prayers of confession? Because when Christ Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer, he added that line, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, as a daily kind of prayer. 
as a regular evaluation, as a way to examine our lives and just ask the simple question, not that you're moving in and out of salvation or anything like that, but is there anything that's disrupting your relationship with God that you need to just evaluate and bring before God and experience his grace anew? What Nehemiah does is he owns not just personal responsibility, he owns what's called corporate responsibility. As he includes himself, God, is there anything that I've done, my father's house has done, that has contributed to the situation that's taking place in Jerusalem? And I recognize this is a totally foreign concept in our hyper-individualistic culture. True? In our hyper-individualistic culture, it almost seems unfair. Like, why should I have to pray about the sins that somebody else did? Anyone have that experience when maybe you were in school and the teacher decided to punish everyone because that one kid made a mistake? It wasn't a mistake. It was intentional. But it was that one kid, right? Not you. Not me. But it was like, and the teacher was, like, you all knew it was coming because the teacher was like, if one, like, they're having a bad day, okay? If one more of you acts out of line, you know, and then you're like, oh, no, it's coming, it's coming. And that one kid, you know, they just, they press the button, and it's, it's terrible, and then the whole class is punished. That's corporate responsibility. It's corporate responsibility. You're gui- it's called being guilty by association, where you n- may not have been the actual person who did it, but you're associated. You're part of the group. Now, we don't complain so much about corporate responsibility when everyone gets a pizza party because one kid won the spelling bee, right? We like it in a positive sense, and we have to recognize it actually works both ways. It works both ways. There is a certain sense that we are not just isolated individuals. We are part of groups, and specifically, when it comes to our theology, we are a part of a group known as the human race. This is what Tim Keller says. I I first encountered this very challenging Theology, but I think a very helpful theology if you're going to understand scripture because this idea comes up time and time and time again. This is a, a talk Tim Keller gave about 12 years ago on the concept of racism. And this is what he says. At the very, very heart of the Bible, what the Bible says about you and the human race, how sin happens and how salvation happens, there's corporate responsibility. And you see this in Nehemiah's prayer. You see this in the prayers of Daniel. You see this in the prayers of people who are isolated by generations and and great geological distances. I'm still somehow part of that. And we see this in Romans chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul tells the gospel through the lens of corporate responsibility. This is what he says in Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And he's talking about how sin entered the world through Adam and how forgiveness and redemption entered the world through Christ Jesus. And so through Adam's disobedience, we are all part of that somehow. Like not personally, obviously. I didn't take a bite of that fruit. I wasn't there in the garden. And yet what what Paul is saying is somehow, someway, because we're all part of the human race, we're what's called guilty by association. Not personally, not because we personally did that, but there's some way that we are grouped with Adam. But that's the bad news. You want to know the good news of the gospel? By one man's obedience. Christ Jesus the righteous, who himself never personally sinned, took on the sins of the world by dying on the cross 
and rose in victory three days later. He was perfectly obedient to God's plan of redemption, obedient to the point of death on a cross, and we now can be what's called righteous by association. We get his righteousness because you or I didn't hang up there on that cross. Christ did in our place, and we get what he did for us. And this is a beautiful way of explaining the good news of the gospel. Now, in 1 John chapter 1, what the Apostle John writes is he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us for all unrighteousness. And I'm just here to ask you that question. Is there something here today that you need to confess, that you need to bring before God your Father, and you need to just trust the fact that Christ Jesus has purchased your forgiveness already? You don't have to scrub away your own sins. You don't have to earn your way back to God. He says, if we confess, he is faithful. He is righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you're here and you've never yet, maybe for the very first time, declared your faith in Jesus, today can be the very first day. You can pray and you can ask God to forgive your sins and lead your life today. And I would encourage you uh, to consider that step of baptism. You can sign up. You can learn more at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. But even if you're already part of God's covenant people, is there anything that's hindering your prayers, that's hindering your relationship with God? You can confess today and experience God's cleansing power today. The fifth C of a powerful prayer, the fifth element, is to pray continually. This means we pray with persistence. This is what he says. He says, I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. Nehemiah perfectly embodies Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray continually. It's a very challenging Bible verse. How do you pray without ceasing? How do you pray, is it every single moment of every single day? And it really has more of this idea of we're just constant in our approach. We're persistent in our approach of of going to God in prayer. Now, Nehemiah, he, he begins, he gets this news in the month of Kislev, and we'll see in Nehemiah chapter 2, God actually answers this prayer in the month of Nisan, not the car dealership. And, uh, and that's about five months, and how often is Nehemiah praying? He's praying day and night, so at least twice a day, right? So potentially even more than that, potentially three times a day, four times a day. We'll just say, like, we'll, we'll round it up, and we'll, we'll round it off, and we'll just say he's praying twice a day for five months. That's about 300 prayers. That, that's actually a lot of prayers. And I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I say, well, I've prayed about that a lot. 300 times? The truth is, we might feel like we've prayed for something a lot because we've, we've been praying for months. We've been praying for weeks. We've been praying for years. It's like twice a day for five months without ceasing. What, how would you pray if you knew on the 300th time, I'm not saying that this is how it works or anything, okay? But if you knew on the 300th time that you prayed that prayer, God would answer your prayer. How would you pray? How would you pray? You would pray continually. You'd keep a list. Well, I'd keep a list. God, I'm on 298. <laughs> Come on. And you would pray with, with what's called hope, that your prayers are chipping away that your prayers are making a difference. You see, I think for most of us, when we say we pray a lot, what we mean is I've prayed occasionally a lot. But have you prayed continually? Have you prayed without ceasing? 
I think this is the way that Jesus taught us to pray in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. Because that's what happens to us. We pray 50 times or 92 times or 187 times, which 187 would be a lot of times to pray about something. And there's, a, there's, there's kind of a limit for most of us where we get to that limit and we lose heart. We kind of give up. I think that's the main reason why we stop praying about things. It's not working. God's not listening. Maybe he doesn't really care, and we kind of give up. And what Jesus tells us is the way to pray is to never lose heart. Until God gives you a clear no, you're going to keep knocking on the door of heaven. And he tells this beautiful parable. I would encourage you, if, if this idea of praying continually is specifically the area of prayer that you need to be challenged in, read Luke chapter 18. He tells this amazing story. It's called the, the parable of the persistent widow. It's about uh, a widow who in the ancient world especially was powerless in her society. And she has this issue that she brings to a judge. And he happens to be a corrupt judge. Now this is not to say that God is corrupt. But it's to say that if this works even on a corrupt judge, imagine how it will work with the righteous judge. And so there's this corrupt judge, the kind of guy who's like, taking, you know, back alley bribes and all this sort of stuff, and he's like, just get out of here. I'm not going to listen to your case. I'm not going to give you favor. I'm not going to, you know, do anything for you, and what it says is the widow kept bothering him. That's the Greek word. She's bothering him, and she's like, uh-uh. I'm not taking no for an answer, right, and so she's just bugging him. She's bugging him, and it says, finally, he says, you're beating me down with your persistent pleading, Literally, like, you're punching me with your, with your nagging. He's like, fine, I'll give you what you want. And what Jesus says is we need to be like that in our prayers. We need to keep bothering God. And at the end of that parable, this is, this is crazy. What Jesus says is he says, when the Son of Man comes back to earth, will he find faith like this? There's some degree in which the persistence of your prayer is actually a measurement of your faith. I think of the times that the disciples were so quick to give up. And you know what Jesus said? You of little faith. Would Jesus find faith in our church because we are persistent in prayer? In Matthew 7, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he says, ask, seek, and knock. But in the Greek, the words are actually present active imperatives, which for those of you who are grammar nerds, it means keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And I would add to that, keep bothering God. Amen? Do you think if we learn to pray continually that we would pray powerful and effective prayers? You better believe we would. And then the last element of a powerful prayer is Nehemiah prays expecting his calling to be challenged. He prays expecting involvement. This actually doesn't show up in the prayer as much as it shows up in that little foreshadowing line at the end. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is in prayer, and he's recognizing the position that God has uniquely given to him. Now, what I think is so powerful about Nehemiah is he's not a prophet, he's not a priest, he's not a king. He's a government official. Really, he's a regular person like you and me. He's got a day job. Now, it happens to be a pretty important job in the empire, uh, the cupbearer to the king was the person responsible for making sure the king was not poisoned on a daily basis, 
which if you know your ancient history, that kind of thing tended to happen a lot. In fact, Artaxerxes' father, Xerxes, was assassinated by one of the members of his court. And so it's not just like paranoia. It's like, could you take a sip of this wine first just to make sure? And that's what the cupbearer's primary responsibility was. But they would also be there for all of the meals. They were a good, you know, you'd have to be like good at conversation, like striking up a conversation with the most powerful man on, uh, in the empire. You would be a trusted advisor. You would also likely be the wine selector. Hey, Nehemiah, what wine's good today? He's like, ooh, I've got a variety for you, right? And he's selecting the wine. And you know what Nehemiah does is he recognizes that this is actually a position that God has given to him. And so he's not praying that God would raise up somebody back there who's already in Jerusalem. He actually prays this prayer, God gives success to your servant today. Who is the your servant that he's referring to? himself. On a daily basis, before he goes to work in the morning, he wakes up, he's like, maybe today's the day. God, would you give success to me today? Now, here's what's so phenomenal about this. You can read about this in Ezra, that Artaxerxes was actually the king who halted the progress on the rebuilding of the walls. And so Nehemiah actually has this challenge of persuading the emperor who is the one who is blocking the people from actually rebuilding the walls, hey, would you like to uh, get involved with a building project? Would you like to send some money to do something that, by the way, you also decreed should not be done? And so this is a very risky thing, and, and, and if Nehemiah speaks out of line, talks out of line, he was, he's not just in danger of being fired, he's in danger of being executed, but he's praying on a daily basis, God, maybe today's the day. Give success to your servant today. Give success to your servant today. And he's watching and he's waiting and he's expecting involvement. What is a step of faith that God is calling you to take for the prayers that you are praying consistently? I think about this. Here's a few examples. Maybe you have uh, a lost friend, family member, or neighbor, and you're praying that God would reveal himself to those people. Keep praying for those people. But would you also be looking for an opportunity? God, give your servant success today. Maybe today's the day that I would have an opportunity to share my faith with them, to encourage them. Maybe you have a friend who's grieving. They're experiencing loss or they're going through a very difficult time. Pray for those people. Pray that God would be close to them, that the Holy Spirit would be the comforter that Jesus promises he is. But would you also just like shoot him a text message and say, what's your favorite coffee again? What's your favorite dinner? Could I, could I buy you lunch? And just offer a, a tangible, practical way to help that person. Maybe there's someone struggling financially in your life, and you pray for them. You pray that God would provide for them with eyes wide open. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just acknowledge today that we have faith, and we, yet we ask for you to help our unbelief, specifically when it comes to the prayers that we pray. We call on you to move. We call on you to raise up a generation after us who knows you. We pray for revival in our time. We pray for healing for many, many people in our church, in our families who need healing. We pray for that. We pray for provision. God, I pray for reconciliation, for relationships and marriages that are struggling. God, we pray for you to do these miracles that we believe you can do, we know you can do. Would you give us the faith to keep praying, to keep knocking on the door of heaven? And God, we believe 
that the things that we've seen you do in the past, that you can do again. We ask these things in the powerful name of Christ. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.